it's Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News here, and today is our latest Maritime in Minutes episode of the Sea Trade Maritime podcast. Over the next 10 to 15 minutes or so, we will be taking a look back at the top and most interesting stories that appeared on Sea Trade Maritime News in the month of October. Casting our minds back to the first week of October and one of the longest-running M&A battles in shipping between John Fredrickson and the Savarese family for control of Neuronav was finally resolved. It was announced that John Fredrickson's frontline and Famatown would be selling their 26% stake in Neuronav to Savarese-controlled CMB, giving the latter a 49% stake in Neuronav. Meanwhile, Neuronav would sell some 24 VLCCs to Frontline for $2.35 billion. The deals result in Frontline and Euronav taking two very different courses after their proposed merger, which collapsed acrimoniously at the start of the year. Frontline very much puts its future on crude tankers, becoming the largest listed pure play tanker company. With a historic low order book for VLCCs of just 2% of the global fleet, little space in shipyards, and continued demand for crude oil Frontline believes it is well-placed to reap the benefits from the market. Meanwhile, CMB wants to diversify Euronav's fleet into other sectors apart from the transportation of crude oil, including taking a leading role in the decarbonization of shipping. Euronav said, This does not mean exiting the tanker business altogether, but a gradual decrease of the share of revenues coming from the pure crude oil transportation by adding different shipping asset types to the Euronav portfolio. It will be interesting to see how these two different courses play out both in the nearer term and the longer term. Meanwhile, outgoing IMO Secretary-General Kitak Lin, who will hand over the leadership of the UN body to Panama's Arsenio Dominguez on the 1st of January next year, opened up in a media briefing about the relationship between the IMO and the European Commission during his tenure, and our correspondent Nick Savides was in attendance at that briefing. The adoption of measures to curb greenhouse gas emissions has been a key element of the IMO's programme while Lim has been at the helm, with the European Commission, among others, pushing for stronger action by the UN body that governs global shipping. Commenting on the relationship with the Commission, Lim said, We had a very constructive dialogue. Even when the EU was pushing the IMO, we saw a positive element to the EU strategy, so with the understanding that the IMO and the EU, and the European Commission in particular, had very constructive communications. It's a relationship his successor will have to continue to manage as the IMO implements its ambitions to decarbonise the shipping industry. Moving into week two, and we're going to stay with the EU and emissions, the implementation of the Emissions Trading Scheme, or ETS, for shipping from 2024. From January, the EU ETS will apply to all shipping coming into or leaving the EU or operating within EU waters and undoubtedly increase the cost of vessels trading within the region. Shipping companies will of course look to pass on these additional costs to their customers, and we reported on three major container lines, Maersk, Hapag, Lloyd and CMA CGM, announcing EU ETS surcharges. The variation in estimated charges is striking, ranging from €7 per TEU through to €105 per TEU. 
The lines use different methodologies to calculate the surcharges, and those using green shipping options will receive varied levels of discount as well. For full details of the surcharges and how they are calculated, see the link to the story Container Lines Set Out EU ETS Surcharges in the show notes. The second story we are featuring in week two of October is an ongoing one, and one of my favorites of this year, and that is SpaceX's Starlink service, which has been shaking up the world of maritime communications. In the past, if there was one thing shipping companies seemed able to agree on, it was that maritime communication services were both expensive and slow. The SpaceX Low Earth Orbit Satellite Communication Service offers speeds of over 200 megabits per second and low latency at a significantly lower price than traditional geo-based satellite systems. It's also rather easy to install. The reaction of the industry, both companies and seafarers, has been enthusiastic and there are a growing number of fleet-wide commitments. One of the latest of these was announced by AP Muller Maersk, that after trialing Starlink on 30 ships, it would now be rolling out the service to all 330 or so vessels in its owned and operated fleet by the first quarter of next year. Merz sees both business and crew welfare benefits, enabling seafarers to stay in touch with loved ones and the expansion of seamless cloud solutions between ship and shore. Meanwhile, at the end of the month, tanker company Hafnir said it had already installed Starlink on 35 vessels and would have its entire fleet covered by the end of 2023. For a service that only officially went live for Maritime in the first quarter of 2023, Starlink is certainly enjoying a high level of uptake in shipping. If you're enjoying the Sea Trade Maritime podcast, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on the app of your choice. Moving into the third week of October, and I'm going to flag up an episode of the Sea Trade Maritime podcast with Panama Canal Authority Administrator Ricardo Vasquez Morales. In a wide-ranging discussion, the administrator takes the listener through the canal's current water issues and what it is doing to alleviate those, both in the near and longer term. In the near term, these are the well-publicized draft restrictions and lower limits on daily transit numbers. Over the longer term, it is using AI to predict weather patterns and optimize the usage of the canal, and there is the possible construction of a new reservoir. Ricarte Vasquez explains. In the future, it will take that we have uh, identified a source of water, fresh water, that can compensate the number of transit we have missed because of drought. We believe this is going to be an issue that is going to be with us. The Panama Canal is climate dependent. So even if we have additional reservoirs or we try to use different technologies in order to save water in the operation and make it more water efficient, there is always a risk of climate. The full episode is well worth a listen and available on this channel on the app of your choice. Earlier in this episode, we touched on the low order book for VLCCs, and this applies more broadly to the tanker and dry bulk sectors as a whole. New regulations have been a major driver for the surge in new building orders in the container, gas, and car carrier sectors, which has driven up the profits of major shipyards in Japan, South Korea, and China. Although ordering for dry bulk and liquid bulk vessels such as crude oil tankers has been limited, analysts say that these sectors will need to start ordering sooner rather than later, as they too will need to meet 
the increasingly stringent regulations that will begin coming into force from January. For shipyards, this should enable current high prices to continue. Ben Nolan, MD Maritime and Energy Infrastructure for Stifle, told Trade Maritime News, There hasn't been much in the way of dry bulk and tanker ordering. However, shipyards have good backlogs and there is an expectation that tankers and dry bulk will have to start ordering given stricter emission standards, so there is no reason for yards to come off their prices. I think until demand softens for a protracted period, we are not likely to see a material price reduction. So, good news for shipyards there, if perhaps less so for tanker and dry bulk ship owners. Moving into week four, and we are staying with emissions regulation compliance, but this time for the existing fleet of dry bulk ships. Speaking to journalists in Athens, Intercargo Chairman Dimitri Fafalios flagged up the potential for Shipboard Carbon Capture and Storage, or CCS. He described CCS as being a very promising solution, and over the next five years, there would be a number of different systems that would be applicable to bulk carriers and many of these would also be tested by Greek owners. He believed carbon capture would be a significant factor in managing emissions. Fafalios also called for regulation that targets more than ship owners and consistency in rules that apply at a national and international level. Lastly, for October, we are moving to the dark fleet of sanction-busting ships, which has grown to some 1,100 vessels, according to analysis by Windward.ai. Towards the end of a keynote presentation at the Nautical Institute Singapore's annual conference, John Martin, Managing Director for P&I Insurers Guard in Singapore, made some interesting observations about the crewing of these vessels. It might be presumed that the Dark Fleet, with its aging, poorly maintained vessels trading under the radar, were crewed by seafarers simply desperate for a job. But this may not actually be the case. According to John Martin, the club has heard from many vessel operators of seafarers being offered higher wages to work on ships in the dark fleet. He urged seafarers not to take offers on these vessels that have little or nothing in the way of an insurance solution. Insurers are concerned that the dark fleet vessels are a casualty risk. For the unfortunate seafarer on board a vessel that causes an environmental disaster and a casualty, there will be no P&I club to support them in the case of arrest by local authorities. He said, there's no one to protect them, so they end up in the slammer, more often than not, with no one to look out for them. And on that cautionary note, this brings us to the end of this episode of Maritime in Minutes. See the show notes for links to stories mentioned in the episode, and we look forward to joining you again next week on the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. Mm-hmm.